Good morning. Welcome, everybody, to Thy Strong Word. I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. We're reading the entire Bible together, book by book and chapter by chapter. Today, we're looking at Zechariah chapter 3. The visions continue, and this time, it's not a vision of a thing. It's not like a measuring line or a wall of fire or horns. Um, It really is a very specific person. It's Joshua the high priest. It's a very interesting chapter. It's a short chapter, only 10 verses, uh, but there's a lot that we can see. If you want to look at visions in the Old Testament that foreshadow and point ahead to Christ, well, here is a really big one right here today. Uh, and also just a couple of other things in here that are just really unique, and, and we're going to have to talk about them. Uh, he gets a stone with seven eyes. What on earth does that even mean? That sounds kind of creepy maybe at first uh, <laughs> at first glance. Um, another thing, there is to his right, to the right of Joshua the high priest standing, it says Satan in our text. What is going on with that? So, very cool chapter, very excited about it. And joining us today, we have Pastor Daniel Olson, pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church in Luxembourg, Wisconsin. Welcome back, brother. Good to have you back. And for such a—I mean, this is this is a really cool chapter we're looking at today. Yes, good to be with you again. Yeah, yeah. And so and so, what, what do you think about this one? When was the last time you looked at Zechariah chapter 3? Well, when was the last time I looked at Zechariah chapter 3? Well, uh, prior to this study, uh, well, I don't know if I ever have. I've read it, I'm sure, many times. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I don't remember it being a uh, Bible study that I've uh, led in all of these years. Um, not not one, of, Unfortunately, not one of those chapters, not one of those portions of Scripture we necessarily look at that often. But as you say, it is indeed uh, uh, rich with... Um, uh, this is so much imagery that points us to, to Christ and um, uh, very Christocentric, so beautiful portion of Scripture, and we, sh- we should be more familiar with it. Yeah, it certainly is surprising in some respects that given uh, such a clear Christological content and foreshadowing that this wouldn't wind up in the lectionary. But um, I, I mean, I, I suppose one of the reasons is that it's not directly quoted um, unlike Zechariah chapter 9, which is basically the only part of Zechariah that actually winds up in our lectionary. Um, and yet, when we get to that stone, um, we, we might be looking at Revelation there. So, I mean, that that is an interesting connection that I, I think we can make to the New Testament today. Right. Well, it's only 10 verses, but I have a feeling that we have our hands full. So let's turn to the text. As we do so, would you say a prayer for us and for everyone listening along today? Absolutely. We pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, <clears throat> as we enter this Lenten season, you invite us to reflect. Uh, you invite us to begin a time of spiritual reflection. As we do so, as we look at our lives, we end up like Joshua in our text. We see that we are clothed in filthy rags. We see the greatness of our sin, our failures to keep your law. Grant that, like Joshua, we would be pointed to how you have removed our filthy rags. You have taken away our sinful clothing, and you have clothed us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We ask that you would guide us here this morning, that we would be deepened in our understanding of your word, and that as we look at this portion of Scripture, like all others, 
that we would be pointed to our Savior, Jesus Christ, and his suffering and death and resurrection on behalf of our sins, and in order to accomplish our salvation, that we would always be found standing firmly upon that rock, which is our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. You know, um, I appreciate your prayer, you know, and making the connection already, and we'll, we'll, I'm sure, talk about this more, but the idea of the the filthy garments being removed. Very interesting, thinking about that, um, the day after Ash Wednesday, right? That, you know, yesterday, so many of us, you know, had the imposition of ashes, and you have that dirt and it's and it's not just dirt right it's it's the dirt of the curse you know it, it's the mark of one who is doomed to die because of sin and and then to have that mark removed then later right to have the filth removed that's a really interesting um i, I mean just church season connection that i had not yeah. made uh, with this chapter yeah, I was originally thinking, how did I get this on my schedule the day after Ash Wednesday? But, uh, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure if I was targeted for that or if I just wasn't paying enough attention, but it's okay. Uh, yeah. I, uh, I also think, like you say, the, the ashes, uh, as I uh, sit here looking at this text, I, I still have uh, marks of the ashes on my my hand uh, that I cannot get off yet entirely. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah, that, those don't. Yeah. Go ahead. And of course, there is that connection to the, you know, as we do on Ash Wednesday, we come forward from dust you came to dust you shall return, a reminder of our sin and, and the filth of it. And we think about those Old Testament connections when yeah. people would, of course, you know, throw ashes on their heads and, and yeah. uh, be clothed in. Um, uh, sackcloth and, and a, a outward visible reminder of exactly. the sin that is inside, and of course, ultimately, right. only only covered by the blood of Christ. Amen. Amen. Yeah, I know that uh, those ashes they don't they don't come out so easily when you're the one imposing uh, them, right? But yeah, I'm um, maybe gas, maybe gasoline. I uh, guess. <laughs> <laughs> A more powerful solvent here, but <laughs> all right. So let, let's go ahead. I want to read just verse one, and 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 just as we as we look at this, just if you can maybe give us your thoughts about okay, like so new vision here. Um, but how how do how do we get here? You know, last time we were looking at this, uh, there was like the man with the measuring line in this talk about the, the Lord protecting Zion as the apple of his eye. So maybe trying to connect some dots here to situate ourselves. But first, just the first verse, just to get the ball rolling. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1 in the English Standard Version. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Okay, so uh, the the vision has shifted. Uh, it, so far, it's been a lot of uh, heavenly figures, um, but now it, it's one, hey, this is one of the guys that we named, um, you know, like in, in the beginning here. This is, uh, this is Joshua. Yeah, this is the, you know, the, the son, um, was it, was it Je- Jehozadak, um, who, who is the high priest. This is a, a guy that we know historically. So an interesting shift here. Yeah, and of course, you know, Joshua, you know, this is a form of, of Jesus, ultimately, Savior. We make those uh, connections. 
And then immediately, of course, um, for us as Christians, Lutherans, we immediately think of the the courtroom scene here, right? Standing Mm -hmm. before the angel of the Lord and the angel at his right accusing him. So already in our minds, there's two things that come to mind, right? Uh, we think of the book of Job. We obviously could not look at this and, and, and not, not make a connection to Job. Right. And the, and the accuser, the devil, of course, Satan, the accuser. He is the one who accuses us. Um, and he has a great deal to accuse us with. We, right. you know, we, we understand that as we stand before God, you know, as, as our judge, the devil accuses us. There's a lot to accuse us of. We have broken his commandments. We are covered in sin. We have filthy garments. And so this starts off for us as when we first look at this, this is kind of a uh, little bit of a, a dire scene, right? Right. You know, we, we stand there with the devil accusing us, and are we guilty? Oh, yes. You know, during this Lenten season, we begin right. this season of of penitential reflection, and we understand our sin very well. We know that we are guilty, so we stand before God as our judge, Satan accusing us, and he accuses us. That's his goal. He does not want us to have a clean conscience, right? He wants us to have a filthy conscience. Easy for him to accomplish. Right. Yeah, well, no, certainly, and, um, you know, like everything you're saying, I think— like makes us recall what we what we read in Haggai and what we looked at the first part of Zechariah, right? I mean, like the, the first thing, right, that that Zechariah says on behalf of God, right? The Lord was very angry with your fathers, right? We had that back in chapter one, verse two. Uh, Do not be like your fathers. Return from your evil ways, right? I mean, that, that repentance word, right? So, yeah, I mean, so from the very beginning of Zechariah, just a, a theme, an idea of, of repentance, very much like Haggai, right? Complimentary. And so even though in this last chapter that we looked at in chapter two, where it was, uh, you know, kind of seemingly more targeted against Babylon and more positive um, towards uh, towards the people of God, towards Zion, right? Like we, we haven't lost this kind of repentance thrust at all. And, and of course, as we get later on into Zechariah, we're going to get very specific about the ways that we need to repent, and as you were saying, that we are the ways that we are justly accused. Yes, yes. So we stand accused and right. guilty. And so, and so, here's a question. I really appreciate that you brought up Job here, because actually, and this is a little bit interesting, because we're we're going through uh, a Lenten, a special Lenten series at our church um, out here in Irvine, and uh, we actually had. Job as, as our kind of theme um, vantage point yesterday. And so we were looking at Job and I mean, all this stuff that you were just mentioning, like they, they put ashes um, on their heads while they're mourning with their friend Job. And it, the, of course, Satan is no, I mean, he's no more prominent in any Old Testament book. I mean, really arguably in any book of the Bible um, than then, I mean, Job. So uh, it is very interesting to make that comparison. And one of the things that jumps out at me in the Hebrew is that um, this is not like where you have it later in Chronicles and not like where you have it in the New Testament. But what you have here is not just Satan in the Hebrew, but it's the Satan, the, uh, you know, adversary, the accuser, the, 
prosecutor right. even, right? And, and so this is like one of the questions I have when I look at this chapter. I'm thinking to myself, is this kind of thinking of, of the, the accuser, the prosecutor, more like Job, where he's kind of serving like a God-given function in, as you were mentioning, the heavenly courtroom, right? Or yeah. is this kind of the, the kind of the picture we have later, where it's kind of this picture of a more of a fallen angel who is up to no good? I mean, what, what what do you think as you as you look at this chapter? Well, yeah, I guess I would answer your question by saying yes. Um, <laughs> you know, certainly, he does have that function here that he is uh, standing there. And he is accusing, you know, this is clearly a courtroom scene. But it is also, you know, we think about this, that this is, this is what the devil does. He accuses. And, and, you know, what does he ultimately wish to accomplish with that? What is, what is the devil's uh, ultimate purpose here? What is his purpose in our lives as the accuser? He wants us to have to not have a clean conscience. He wants us to have a dirty conscience. And he ultimately, his goal is that we despair, right? That we despair of Christ. And, you know, again, to bring in the theme of Job, what was the danger for Job? And Job teeters on that, doesn't he? Right. Despair is complete despair, giving up on God, giving up on God's love. That's ultimately his, his purpose for us is that we despair of Christ. He shows us our failures, not even just outright confronting us with, you know, you committed this or that horrible sin, but we think of all of the failures that we suffer because of our fallen sinful condition. You know, right. he, he accuses us. You're a failure as a father. <laughs> look, at, look, at the, look at your kids. You know, how, how effective do you think that is with even the best of parents at some point, sure, right? Sure, uh, yeah. you're, you're a failure as a husband. You're a failure as a mother, a wife. And so he accuses us and ultimately gives us a dirty conscience. And so that we, we despair of Christ, that we're pointed away from him. And, and look at Job. Job teetered on on despair in so many places. We we can think of so many. I mean, I, of course, always one of my favorite examples of marital bliss in the Bible in the Old Testament is when Job's wife comes out to him and says, "Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die." Right, right. You know, you know that's that's right. I mean, it, it, yeah, of course, yeah. It gets it gets the ball gets rolling really fast in Job, and I mean, um, you know, like, like you were saying, I mean, even immediately after that. Pretty much the first thing he does after that that initial time of mourning is he curses the day he was born. So it doesn't take long for that despair to set in. And and certainly as we look at 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 this chapter here, um, we can certainly, uh, yeah, I think you can kind of see it both ways. Is you know, is this you know the accuser serving his God given function? I mean, I mean, certainly there's been a lot of accusation going on through. Isaiah and Haggai and Zechariah, I mean, right, the whole reason for this exile, right, was because of sin that is rightly accused. So, you know, so there is that side of it, but as you were saying, um, you know, it, it, there's this despair setting in, right? That was what we saw in Haggai, right? Like, uh, yeah. hang on, what, what, we're back here in the, in the promised land, but what good is it, right? What, what good is it, you know, we're doing all this stuff, but God doesn't seem to notice, right? God doesn't seem to see me, like yeah. Job. Uh, began to say many times. So, yeah, I, th- I think you're right. You see, you see, kind of, you, you can definitely line that up. Um, e- e- maybe either either way, or maybe even 
both ways. But yeah. uh, let's go ahead and, and, and take a little bit more in here uh, to mm-hmm. kind of complement uh, the, the, the line of thinking we're on here. So that, that's verse one. You got Joshua in front of the angel of the Lord, and we've talked about that a little bit. And then to his right, you got the accuser. Okay, verse two then. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now, Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. All right, just want to pause like right right here, because that's kind of already a lot to, to take in here. So the, the, the image has expanded. Not only, right, is it Joshua the high priest before the angel of the Lord with, with Satan then to the to the right of uh, presumably Joshua, um, right, in this picture, but you've also got uh, people like attendants um, standing in front of Joshua, and there's also uh, some kind of fiery brand or something like that. So, so, so our, our image here is expanding, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, so, you know, we see immediately, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. So the Lord rebukes Satan, even though Joshua stands there in filthy garments. And, and why? What is the basis for that? The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. So the Lord right. has chosen Jerusalem, despite her sinfulness, despite their sinfulness, he has chosen them. And obviously, we find great comfort in that, don't we? Because right. he has chosen us. We are told that we are his chosen people. Right. And, and that, that, that's, 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 a great, that's a great point, because it's, he's not saying, like, hey, accuser, um, that, that's an unfounded accusation, right? That's, that's out of order. Like, well, right. well, no, he's, he's, he's not actually negating that at all. I mean, I mean in some ways, um, it, it's almost just letting it stand, saying, okay, well, that may be the case, all right? But it's not time for any more accusation. The accusation has served its purpose, um, and, and now I, I need you to back off and uh, sim- simmer down, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> you, you have this word rebuke, right? And uh, I mean, it's it's a word that, you know, could mean something kind of uh, insulting or antagonistic, but not necessarily. It can just mean, you know, uh, I mean, we have descriptions about uh, God re- rebuking the waters or, or the waves, or of course, even of course, yeah. in the New Testament, um, it's the Greek equivalent. But like when the Lord rebukes the storm and the wind, right? I mean, he's not saying that they're like sinful or evil or something. He's just saying, okay, you've done what you're supposed to do, and now I'm telling you to, to back down. Yes. And we see that Joshua is, he's not, he doesn't speak at this point, does he? Right. He's, he, he is silent. It is the Lord who says that he has chosen Jerusalem. It is the Lord who rebukes. Well, why would, why would Joshua be silent? Well, because the accusations are well-founded, aren't they? Right. He's standing, right. There, he's standing there in filthy garments. He doesn't try any kind of self-justification. He doesn't try to excuse his sins away. He doesn't try to excuse his actions. He simply stands there silent before the Lord. What else can right. he do? 
Well, and, and as you said too, it, it's it's a rebuke that's that's just on the basis of grace. It's on the basis of choosing Jerusalem, right? And, and that 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 choosing word, I mean, such a big theme in the Old Testament that we've been tracking with, you know. And it was, it was such a big emphasis in Numbers and Joshua, as we saw, right? But you know, the idea is always, you know, this is God's chosen people. God has chosen this people from among all the peoples of the earth, and it wasn't because they were better or more impressive, or anything of themselves, right? It was just an act of grace. And so, I mean, it's such mm-hmm. such a gracious word in the Old Testament, mm-hmm. this this choosing word. And so, right, yeah, I think you make a really good point. Joshua doesn't say anything. The only one who's speaking is the one who's imparting this grace in this very intercessory way. And this is very, uh, this complements very nicely what we had back in chapter one, because back in chapter one, we had this angel of the Lord, right? Um, which which was really interesting, this moment in chapter one, if we recall, you know, there's this angel of the Lord, and at that point, he was uh, mounted on a red horse back in chapter one. And and he and he says this really interesting thing, right? He, he calls out, oh, Lord, and this is really interesting. It says, the angel of the Lord said, oh, Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah? against which you have been angry these 70 years. And so he, he does this intercessory work here, and it seems again that we, we have this, this um, intercessory work again where the angel of the Lord is invoking the Lord. That's what he says, right? The Lord rebuke you. But what's so interesting here is that the angel of the Lord is just described as the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. I mean, it's intercessory, but... It's it's tying that angel of the Lord very very closely with the Lord Himself, right? Yes, right, right. And you know, obviously, we think of the doctrine of election. You know, God chooses us. He chose us from before the be, before the uh, beginning of the world. He called us to be justified. Um, you know, Romans eight uh, and so forth. So, yeah. So it is the Lord choosing him, and uh, despite his filthy garments, he stands there, filthy garments, recognizing he deserves nothing from God, just as we do. Uh, we, we stand before, we come and we stand before his altar, realizing we deserve nothing, but yet chosen by him. Right, right, yeah. You, you think of the doctrine of election, and um, and I mean, here even, of course, it's not it's not worked out in the way that election um is already in the Old Testament to a certain extent, but uh, even a little bit foreshadowing that that Trinitarian doctrine, right? Like this is kind of uh, reminds me of the whole like when when the uh, when the Lord Jesus says, you know, how is it that the Lord said, you know, the, the Lord said to my Lord, right? Like what's what's going on, right? Yeah. Um. And, and so here it is, like, the Lord said, the Lord rebuke you. So it's like, hang on a second, how is the Lord calling upon the Lord? Well, we Christians know that God the Son calls upon God the Father. And, and there's this, it's, it, when you look at it, it, it kind of seems, uh, I don't know, re- redundant or nonsensical or circular or something, but it, it's already kind of, that idea is already here a little bit in the Old Testament. Yes, yes, yeah. And, and then, of course, you know, the brand plucked from the fire, um, you know, saved from destruction that God has plucked from the fire. Um, right. Uh, yeah, right. And so I, that was, um, and that's something that I was going to ask about here. So, yeah, I mean, what do we, 
I mean, this is this is interesting because you know we've seen this this kind of something taken from the fire before, like in Isaiah, where it was like uh, you know the angel you know took one of these fiery coals and used it to purge uh, the the guilt, the iniquity from Isaiah's lips. But as you were saying, this this seems to be actually here um, just a, a description when it says is not this um, referring to this man, a description of of Joshua and, and, and consequently the whole people of Israel. So a little bit of an interesting twist here. Um, I think there's a little bit more we can say about that, but we got to take our break here, but everybody hang on with us. We're looking at Zechariah chapter three here on nice strong word. And we'll be right back. Did you know that the Psalms are a wonderful way to receive a large measure of comfort from the Lord? In Psalm 116, the psalmist writes, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Yes, the Lord hears you when you call out to him and he is with you at all times. Some thoughts about your all times God? That's coming up on the next MOA weekend at 7.45 a.m. right here on Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news. Did you know that many LCMS military personnel and their families are unable to receive Word and Sacrament ministry due to the lack of LCMS chaplains? Ministry to the Armed Forces is looking for pastors who will answer the call to serve as a chaplain to provide Word and Sacrament ministry to the men and women who selflessly serve our nation. Find out more about this exciting ministry by contacting me, Chaplain Craig Mueller, at lcmschaps at lcms.org. That is lcmschaps at lcms.org. On the next Lamplighter Theater. I cannot help but speak of the one who loves me. Jesus? Yes. Jesus is still teaching me about his boundless love. I long to have the same love for him and for others. The Christian has to be dealt with. Why? He has been talking to my parents about his religion. We kill the infidel tonight. Don't miss the next Lamplighter Theater. Saturday mornings at 11 on Worldwide KFUO. Welcome back, everybody, to Thy Strong Word. I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. We're looking at Zechariah chapter 3, just a, a fascinating chapter, not one that's in the lectionary, not one that's as familiar, but just so much Christological stuff. It's it's so Christ-centered here, and, and it's this really interesting picture language. So much is going on. Very appropriate for the day after Ash Wednesday. So it's just a lot of great things going on here. And we're joined today by Pastor Daniel Olson, pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Luxembourg, Wisconsin. I want to make sure to invite our live listeners. If you have a question for us today, for me or Pastor Olson, give us a call, 1-800-730-2727. Or if you're in St. Louis, 314-821-0850. Or you can always send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. Also want to thank our underwriters, at the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Their website is lhfmissions.org. Thank you guys for your support. All right. 
So turning back to the text here, we were just looking at this and, and you were just um, saying how it, it's probably the case here that this um, you know fiery brand um, that's being spoken of here is not, I mean, because you know, it's not like in Isaiah 6 where, you know, they're going to take it and like do something with it, right? So it's not like it's kind of like something new that we're going to focus on. It, it seems like it's just a, a way of referring to to Joshua and even the people of Israel. I mean, you just said who has chosen Jerusalem. And and I think I really, I like um, that, that idea as you were describing it. It reminds me of how in a different part of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter uh, 42, verse 3, I think it was, uh, it, you have that description, a smoldering wick he will not quench, right? I mean, so th- there's there's a different uh, strand here that is also Christological. Yeah, so we're talking about, I mean, it's talking about uh, God's people at the verge, the brink of destruction. Right. Um, and he pulls them back. He saves them. And yes, Isaiah and uh, even, uh, you know, the, the smoldering wick, like you say, uh, about to go out. But Christ, right. you know, we are given, you know, almost the image of Christ uh, putting his hands around the smoldering wick and protecting right. it so that it so that it is not extinguished. Uh, right. You know, we we think of our uh, faith at times and how often times does it appear to be a smoldering wick. Mm-hmm. But yet he puts his hands around us and keeps us firm. So that it does not, right. so that it is not extinguished. Right. So, so I mean, it is just, I mean, quite, quite an image here on on all counts. How, I mean, of course, Joshua as the high priest prefigures the Lord Jesus, but I mean, in this picture, really, uh, you, you have the, it's the angel of the Lord who is, I mean, you know, I, I think that many of us would just, would just say simply just is the Lord Jesus right there standing before Joshua doing the sort of stuff that he would be seen doing uh, when he was born of his mother, Mary, um, and the stuff that he does among us in his church. You know, here he is, as you were saying, protecting us. And just when, when things seem dark, when, when seem, things seem like they're all going to come to an end and, and just plunge into darkness, right? He, he comes and he intercedes, he intervenes, right? And, and so, not only has he plucked us um, from the fire that l- lest we be just totally uh, destroyed or, or, or conversely in that image of Isaiah that we would like have our, our light go out. Um, not only does he do this, but then there's the removal of the filthy garments. So I, let's actually, we kind of stopped our thought. Uh, we, we were in the middle, I think of verse four. So the, the angel of the Lord just says the angel, right? But this is who we're talking about. Um, just how it says, just the Lord in the middle of verse two. So this is the middle then of verse four. And to him, he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Okay. So, you have there there it is right i mean just very clearly we've already been talking about how the filthy garments we we can just connect that very easily in so many ways to a, a symbol for 
uh, sin, iniquity, un- uncleanness, right? And, and so there he goes and just makes it clear, explicit in verse 4. Uh, and then more than that, in verse 5, there's this little little extra bit. And I said, no, hang on, what? Who is, who is I? Um, that hasn't been said uh, yet in this chapter. And he not only gets, uh, you know, the, the dirty stuff taken off and, and clean stuff put on, but he gets something more that he didn't have before. He has this this turban also. So yeah, so I mean, what is this picture of the clothing and this um and this eye interjecting into things? Right. Well, you know, as we said, the clothing. I mean, we immediately. Uh, I guess I would immediately think of uh, Isaiah sixty four, uh, five and six. Uh, you meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry, and we sinned, and our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? Verse 6, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Right. So, you know, again, we we, we see the the filthy garments, and uh, uh, remove the filthy garments from him. Behold, I have taken your iniquity, away from you. Well, that's the angel of the Lord, right? That would be Jesus. Mm-hmm. I have taken mm-hmm. your iniquity yep. away from you and will clothe you with pure vestments. So we see that God takes the filthy garments away, doesn't he? Uh, not right. that Joshua could do this, not that the people could do this, but we see that Jesus takes those filthy garments away and he clothes his people. He gives them clean garments. He clothes them in righteousness. So a uh, beautiful image uh, for us. And we think of how uh, Jesus takes away the filth of our sins and clothes us in his righteousness that we might be made clean as well. Right. You know, I, well, yeah, very, very baptismal, right? Just, I mean, it's like what we yeah. talk about when we do the baptismal, right? And we actually say like you know here and take this you know this this clean white garment right and that's that's the idea that, that we've had the dirty garments washed away removed and then we get the the robe of christ's righteousness is what we say um in, in our right and i mean it's just very, very similar right and because he's this is all happening at the order of the angel of the lord this is all happening at at the order of our lord jesus yeah, we think of, I mean, I think of Romans 6, you know, being uh, entered into his death and resurrection. You know, he comes to us and he enters us into his death and resurrection so that our sins are are removed from us. We are clothed right. ultimately in Christ's death and in his resurrection. So we, we are given the, the robes of righteousness. You know, of course, we think of of revelation as well, you know, that we are, that who are these who are uh, clothed in the, um, the, the white robes, um, and, you know, uh, Titus 3, you know, the washing of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So um, we are, um, in Galatians, uh, about that's what I'm trying to think of as well, is uh, Galatians 3, 26 and 27. Uh, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Right. So, right. Yeah. So I mean, just yeah, just all all of these, so many connections, so many connections, and it really is just something that, of course, it, it's not as if this is you know don't don't anybody listening get us wrong like as if this doesn't have any meaning for its immediate context and it's all just kind of 
one big allegory for the New Testament, basically. We're not saying that. It's just that all, all of that stuff that that is in the rest of Scripture and in the New Testament, it's already, like, prefigured here. I mean, you, you don't say that, like, you know, oh, God was, like, really mean in the Old Testament, and then, like, later he gets really nice and, like, Jesus comes, right? Like, well, no. I mean, right. Jesus, our Lord, was doing all this stuff already in the Old Testament. Again and again, he keeps showing up as the angel of the Lord, Right. And he keeps doing this stuff, whether it's, you know, protecting his people as, as he's pulling them out of Egypt, whether it's speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, uh, whether it's, you know, going with Joshua into battle, I mean, whether it's this, you know, cl- cleaning and restoring the priesthood. Our Lord Jesus was busy and active just throughout the Old Testament in, in this hidden way. It's undeniable just from an Old Testament perspective, you have to admit that the angel of the Lord has this this function of of judging and commanding and interceding on behalf of the people of God, like it's it's just there all over the Old Testament. Right. Yeah. How were people saved in the Old Testament? By faith. By they were saved by God's grace, just as we are in the New Testament. People were not saved by by their own good works, and that's what we see here very clearly. Uh, you know, it's not it's not it allegory. It's that we see here in this Old Testament passage in Galatians 3, we see that uh, we see that the angel of the Lord takes away the filthy garments, and he clothes Joshua with the pure vestments. And then, of course, well, for us, how does that happen? He still does that for us, doesn't he? And for us, mm-hmm. we look at uh, uh, Galatians uh, three twenty-seven. for as many as you of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So again, we are clothed. He clothes us. So we, right. we, we, see, we see the same thing happening by the same Lord. Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, so it, it's a pattern, and so that, that means that there is something that's actually happening immediately, which is that you have actually, you know, our, our pre-incarnate Lord, the, the, the angel of the Lord, right? He is, in, in this moment here, encouraging um, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, right? We, we had that at the end of Haggai. God was speaking those words of encouragement to Zerubbabel. And here, this is a moment of encouraging Joshua, right? Like these leaders were not just these, you know, titans of men that were just so inspirational and they're the ones who got Israel back on track. No, they were full of the grace of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it was him working through Zerubbabel and Joshua, that made this happen. And here he is cleansing and purifying the priesthood because he needed to do it. As we've been saying, the priesthood um, had, you know, like the rest of Israel, fallen into sin and needed to be restored if it was going to do any good for God's people. Um, and, and you see that just a, a really interesting moment then. Zechariah is seeing all this and he's just moved and he seems to just kind of interrupt and just be like, and and, and a turban too, right? Have them have them put that on him as well. And so the yeah. the implication is that the angel of the Lord, our Lord Jesus, uh, grants this request of Zechariah, which which is just, I mean, fascinating on on multiple levels here. But of course, the turban was a part of the traditional um, dress for the high priest. And so it's an image, really, that speaks not only to just the intercessory and forgiving work of the Lord Jesus, but how the priesthood 
is ultimately from the Lord Jesus himself. Uh, he's the one who establishes it and reestablishes it. And that's, of course, indicative of how he is the one who truly possesses it himself. And ultimately fulfills it. Yes, exactly. It finds its, it finds its fulfillment. All of those sacrifices of the Old Testament, all of those sacrifices of the high priest, all of those will find their fulfillment in the sacrifice that Christ will make on the cross. Yes, right. They, they, they all find their fulfillment and and anything that they did do in the Old Testament was by virtue of the one who established them. I mean, even even they and, and the priests and those sacrifices really all predicated on the Lord Jesus himself. He was the one who was giving the priesthood and, the priesthood and re-giving the priesthood here, right? I mean, it's really yeah. it's Christ's own um, work that's being done through everything that was happening in the Old Testament, right? So just um, really, really interesting moment there for uh, a few reasons. And, and of course, just more mercy, right? Because uh, <laughs> Joshua has been humbly, as you were saying, not saying a word, <laughs> but Zechariah just is like, oh, and, and a turban, right? And um, no one, he doesn't get rebuked, right? Just very mercifully, um, they're just like, all right, well, we're going to go ahead and do that. Um, so just uh, a, lot of, a lot of things going on here. Let, let's take a look, though. Now, at the second half of this chapter, uh, and and I think maybe just we're going to go up to the point right before the stone, because I think we want to spend a little bit of time just looking at this stone all by itself. Um, so maybe like just six through eight right here. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. All right, so just pausing there because... I don't want to kind of bite off more than we can chew all at one time here. But so um, another sort of figure has emerged. And of course, this is one that if we, if we thought that, you know, there was a lot of of Christ centered imagery, like, well, here, here it comes again. You have this assurance, right. That's being brought from the angel of the Lord. So, okay, there's our Lord Jesus bringing us assurance and consolation. Right. Um, But then, right. Um, I will bring my servant the branch. So, yeah, that's suggestive. What do you What do you think? Well, the branch, of course. Uh, this is uh, Jesus is, of course, the branch of uh, you know Jesse's branch. This is mm-hmm. um, we think of the um, the the shoot that uh, will come up. So we think, of course, of uh, uh, Christ as being the branch. Right. Right. And so you, you have that imagery, um, you know, of course, I, I think that prophecy that you're referring to, that's Isaiah 11, right? Um, and, and so you have this idea, right, you know, Christ the branch, and of course, uh, you know, that gets picked up in the New Testament, right? This idea that, you know, uh, there's been this stump um, that the people of God have been reduced to, and yet he is this righteous branch. And, and in some ways, we are then just the branches that grow out of him. And that's kind of the idea that, that you get, like in John, for example, right? So, uh, yeah. right, you, you got this. Isaiah, Go ahead. 
Yeah, Isaiah 11, 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch mm-hmm. from its roots shall bear fruit. Right. So, I mean, so it, it is um, it, it is very suggestive. You know, you have the, the, the angel of the Lord, our Lord Jesus, speaking on behalf of the, the Lord of hosts, um, you know, here, God the Father, and God the Father saying, you know, if you if you will keep this charge, right, I will give you this access and I will bring the branch, right? I mean, who this is to say, I'll, I will bring the, the one who's standing before you, um, <laughs> who is actually going to be the high priest, right? Um, and we're, we're not going to have you kind of doing it as a representative, but we'll actually just have him do it um directly i mean that that that's uh that's i mean of course i think the way that we we see this as the fulfillment of it right the ultimate fulfillment of these things um right. do, do you do you take there to be any meaning in the immediate context for these uh, returning exiles there i mean what what the my servant the branch being brought might refer to in this very particular local immediate context well, um, they're, they're, of course, uh, being given the assurance that they are, again, God's uh, uh, chosen people. They are, the, uh, behold, I will bring my servant the branch. So it is a promise that the, the branch, the uh, Isaiah 11, 1, that the, uh, even though they've been cut down, the right. branch is going to come forth uh, from the stump. The branch will come forth. The Savior will come. Right. So it's a you know a messianic promise for them, and then of course ultimately, as you say, we think of uh, you know for us we think of I, um, John fifteen you know Jesus I am the vine you are the branches you mm-hmm. know being connected to Him uh, through faith in Christ. Right. Yeah. No. And, and I think that that's that's really um, a remarkable thing that you know from very early on, even non-Christian interpreters have looked at this text as a messianic prediction uh, be, because of, of what's being said here. So, I mean, that is, it is interesting that, I mean, a lot would say this is just actually a direct messianic promise, which w- would really be something for them because, uh, you know, again, there's not actually a Messiah right now, right? I mean, there, there's not actually a proper king of Israel. I mean, the king is Darius, a Persian guy who is ruling over them, right? And Zerubbabel, well, Zerubbabel, we have that that assurance at the end of Haggai, like, you know, he's a signet ring and he's going to serve a, a messianic function in a limited sense, kind of like how Joshua is here. But I mean, they, they are actually hungering for a real Messiah to come. So yeah, it, it could just really just be straight up, just, you know, hang on guys, like the Messiah is is near and uh of course it it was um near nearer than ever and which is what isaiah again isaiah and isaiah 4 2 in that day the branch of the lord shall be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of israel so the promise of that king who will come from the line of david uh, a davidic king who will ultimately um bring atonement for the people right yeah, no, yeah, cer- certainly, and of course, yeah, we, we saw that when we looked back at Isaiah 11, that, you know, the ultimate fulfillment, again, in pointing ahead to our Lord Jesus, though I'm reminded that when we were looking at Isaiah, we did see that there was a limited local fulfillment 
um, in in the reign of Hezekiah, that when Hezekiah repented, there there was this season of of peace and light because the word was was being brought back into the people of God. That after a time of some really wicked kings who had neglected the word of God, the word of God was that shining light that um, you know through Hezekiah was brought back, and so. If there is a local fulfillment in the sense of the word being made manifest in the immediate context, the thing that I think where my mind goes anyway would be the work of Ezra that, you know, when Ezra, because he's not here yet, right? He has some time before Mm -hmm. he shows up onto the scene. But when he does, right, he's going to read the book of the law. He's going to bring the word of God back. He's going to speak to a situation that has been in so much disarray and, and the word of God is going to shine light on the people. So uh, if there is any kind of local fulfillment, that, that's where my mind goes anyway. Um, and of course, we, you know, we, we already talked about Ezra when we looked at Ezra, but Ezra in many ways as a, as a priestly figure, of course, also foreshadowing the Lord Jesus. But I want to take a look at this stone now. We only have a, a little bit of time here at the end. Because this is what, uh, you know, it seems like there's a connection to Revelation here. And when you get to Revelation, I think it's like in chapter like two. Um, it, it's it. Oh, is, is it chapter five? Um, yeah, there's. Oh, yeah, no, that's right. Yeah. So there's this little um, there there's this stone that that's kind of interesting. So here you are in, in mm-hmm. verse nine, then of Zechariah. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua on a single stone with seven eyes. I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Mm-hmm. Okay, so yeah, so yeah, so it's like not not that much is like said about this stone. I mean, it, it has seven eyes and and the esv is helpful because it says that well i could be a hebrew way of saying facets so it's a it's a seven faceted stone perhaps with an inscription and we don't that's the thing though we don't know what the inscription is but connected to forgiveness and peace right so i mean that's that's really suggestive mm-hmm. yeah you know and of course in the in scripture the number 7 um, you know, the number of fulfillment. So it appears to be that the eyes of the Lord are, um, you know, is the symbol of the of the kingdom of God, the seven eyes of the Lamb, which are the seven spirits of God, Revelation 6, actually, right? So, okay, yeah. And, yeah, yeah, uh, the, 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 seven, the seven eyes, you get, you get actually actual, like, seven eyes, like, you know, like, you know, eyeballs, right? When, when, when you look at, like, the, uh, it's the lamb with the seven horns and the seven eyes, right? Um, the, the, the stone, though, right? Uh, so that was in, that was Revelation chapter 2, where it's at the end of the letter to the church in Pergamum, and, and, you, and you get this, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Right. So, and I, I mean, and the revel- yeah, the Revelation 5, 6, yeah. that's where we have the seven horns with seven eyes, which are right. the seven spirits of God sent out right. into all of the earth. 
Yeah, so this seems to get picked up in Revelation on like a couple different levels here. Um, so, I mean, which is just really interesting that that Revelation seems to be, you know, drawing on this, connecting to this. But in both places, what's striking to me, um, you, have, you have the sevenfold nature, which you were just helping us kind of ponder just a little bit. But then there's this inscription, and in both places in Revelation um, and here, we don't actually get to hold what the inscription is. Um, except that I guess revelation that tells us that it has something to do with a new name. So what do you think the the significance of this stone is here in Zechariah chapter um, three that we're looking at? Well, you know, it's, you know, obviously some sort of a, a sculpture, Um, you know, ultimately, you know, we look at the, um, you know, it says uh, with, with the descriptions, I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. So, that part's easy, right? That's right. talking about Calvary, and so okay. this is, uh, you know, this is pointing to uh, remove the the single stone with seven eyes. It is looking on the Messiah, and uh, it's the inscription will remove the iniquity of the land in a single day. So we're talking about Calvary. We're talking about uh, Jesus ultimately. Um, giving up his life at Calvary. So it's the number of perfection that is directed upon Jesus, the loving care of of the Lord as he observes his people, uh, the believers in him, and he takes their transgressions and their punishment at Calvary. Right. Amen. And and certainly, you know, when you think about it, what it means maybe in the local context, people have lots of different interpretations, but uh, among them, um, you have this idea, is, is he talking about the capstone of the temple, right? Because or, or, you know, through the work of Haggai and Zechariah, and then, you know, of course, later Ezra and Nehemiah, we're talking about, you know, rebuilding the temple and the city. So are we talking about, you know, building the temple, getting it done? And it just complements what you said, because if we're talking about the temple, well, what does the New Testament say? about the temple, who is the true temple, right? The temple of his body. We're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. We're talking about our Lord is the temple. So just uh, uh, amen to everything you said, all the all yeah, the, the lines meeting up. And the connection yes. to First Peter 2.6, you know, behold, yep. I am laying in Zion a stone, the cornerstone, chosen and precious. So again, amen. logical. Exactly. Brother, thank you so much. So good having you on. Looking forward to next time. Blessings on your Lenten tide. All right. Thank you. Everybody, that was Pastor Daniel Olson, pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church in Luxembourg, Wisconsin. Moving on to Zechariah chapter 4. Until next time, everybody, I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. Peace. You've been listening to Thy Strong Word, produced by the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate Office of National Mission in cooperation with Worldwide KFUO the official broadcast ministry of the LCMS. Your support is vital for this program to continue. You can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at kfuo.org. Thank you for listening and supporting Thy Strong Word.